Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, we speak with music journalist and former editor of Q magazine, Ted Kessler. He tells us all about the music press in a brilliant new memoir. Also on the show, our team in Kyiv spoke with Hayan Avakian, the editor-in-chief of a Ukrainian publication called Zvoy, which covers the eastern Ukrainian region of Donbas. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. This week on The Stack, I had the pleasure to speak with music journalist Ted Kessler. Ted worked at the iconic music title NME and was also the editor of Q magazine. I remember that Q was one of the first magazines I became interested in. It played a huge part in my music interests, so it's excellent to hear from the man who worked there for so many years. In his memoir, Paper Cuts, How I Destroyed the British Music Press and Other Misadventures, Ted tells us more about his life as a music journalist and also asks questions about the future of the music press. Here is my chat with him. It's a slightly over-egged title. The paper cuts bit is good. I, like, I was very happy with the paper cuts. I pleased myself to the afternoon off when I thought of that. But the, uh, the subtitle is, is a little bit over-egged. It was a working title that I just got stuck with. And by the end, the publisher was like, no, it's really good, keep it. I'm like, okay. But I know that's the thing that's going to annoy people. And it has been the thing that's annoyed people. Uh, it's the one thing that, um, for example, John Mulvey, who's an old colleague of mine and edits Mojo magazine, did take issue with that on social media saying well, you know I'd like to think the music press is still going and you know it, he's still got a job and that magazine's still going so I did feel bad about that but um, there you go but if you read the book actually it's not negative at all actually it ends on a very positive note I know we're starting the interview talking about the final pages of the book but actually I think you still remain quite positive uh, about well, the music press in a know, way in a way I'm, I'm not of the press itself music journalism I will say has never been more, in my experience, well, it's not has been, actually. Music journalism is, is, is in robust health, and there's a lot of it, and there's you can read tons of it. And in fact, you know, if you include music books, which we should do, there are tons of music books. I can't remember a time when there's been more music books published. There are hundreds of them. I mean, there's too many of them. There's four a month at the moment, it seems to be, and I can't get through them, and they're all quite interesting. So there's lots of music journalism. But in terms of the music press, what it represented when I grew up, which was... I grew up and there were three weekly inky music magazines, plus there was Smash Hits, which is a, a fortnightly pop magazine. I mean, those there was Enemy, Melody Maker, Sound, Smash Hits. Between them, those four would sell well over a million a month. Then there was also Q magazine, which would sell 250,000 copies a month. Then there was Select Vox. So it represented a lot of... A lot of acreage on the newsstand and it also it was something that you you joined so you became a member of each club so if I was a member of the enemy I was an enemy reader that was really what I believed in and it really became my language the way I spoke and it was the only place I, and it was it also became educator in terms of politics and music and all sorts of stuff so in terms of that the music press has has gone and we don't it's that now we have a very broad lens and you can pick bits and pieces but there's not something that feels so tribal and i think personally that's a shame <laughs> i mean i think that's a that's a big shame for the culture and for alternative culture and alternative literature but there is lots of music journalism and there's you know newsletters books websites 
But do you feel part of those gangs? I don't think you do. And that's one part of the book that actually, I'm still thinking actually about that quote, because it's very well for the papers to cover music, but they cover in a different way. It's more, oh, there's this trend. But as you're saying, a nice band with a great third album. I mean, maybe they're not finding, you know, the space on on kind of a more mainstream publication. No, no, there's definitely not. And I'll give you an example of that right now. This week, there's a band called Working Men's Club who are on their second album and... It's just gone in at number 11, and it's on Heavenly, so it's an indie label. It's number 11. Now, the singer of that band, Sid, a guy called Sid, whose surname I cannot remember at the moment, he's a real character, and his lyrics are quite interesting, and the music's quite out there, and they've got a cult following, but you would not know anything about them. It's very hard. There's no. If they'd been in the music press, he would have been on, say, Enemy Twice Already cover. You know, it'd been a bit at the start. They'd been on for a sort of early single or the first album, and they'd have a big one now, and there'd be like a whole story. We'd have the whole background of that band, and they'd have a little cult following. But at the moment, we don't really know who they are, and they just and it's just this, this the mythology is not being stored up for future use, and it's very important. So when I talked about Mojo a minute ago, it's very important that that mythology is built up within the press, so in future generations they have something to write about. <laughs> and at the moment, we don't have those stories. We don't know where those people are coming from, and so yeah, them. I mean, there's also the band like the Cortinas, massive band. Like not not particularly interesting to a lot of people, but they play stadiums, they play Old Trafford. I mean, they play 60,000 people and there's no press on them, very little, occasionally a little sort of snippy review here and there. You know, I think in the old days those bands would have been covered and there'd be a bit more mythology growing around them. But your first uh, kind of experience with the music press was for a title, which I, I didn't know before reading the book, to be honest. Was it The, the, the Lime Lizard? It's called Lime Lizard, yeah. yeah. It was just a... Mm. It was a a woman called Britt Collins, who's an American woman who lived in Highbury, who had a load of lizards in her flat. She's mad about lizards <laughs> and snakes and that kind of thing. Anyway, she had a little fanzine, and um, it was meant to be monthly. It was more like it was quarterly, really, and it was pretty haphazard. But it was very well designed, and she managed to get some very good photographers together to work on it. And she gave chance to a lot of writers who weren't writers, such as me. I didn't. I wasn't a writer at that stage. I didn't know it, you know... I loved music and I knew everything about it, but I was a bit of a no-hoper. And uh, she gave me the chance to go and interview some some people and really threw me in. And I mean, it, it was the deep end that I was drowning, but it, water wasn't very deep because I wasn't getting paid. And it, you know, it's. But I did go interview my hero. I mean, interv- interviewed Lawrence from Felt at the time, who was a massive hero, and I interviewed Billy Childish, who at that time I was massive fan of and I managed to go meet these people and have a drink with them in a pub or sit in their flat and learn how to interview people really sink and swim so yeah that was that was how it started for me and it's interesting you're talking about you meeting the people you love because one thing that's becoming harder and harder with more PRs and everything is is it's difficult to get access uh, to some of the names right well it's reach isn't it so I think in the old days there was a lot of I mean even something like Lime Lizard would be read by 20,000 people so that's quite I mean that's you know, nowadays, a magazine would not sell 20,000 people. Mm-hmm. Q was barely selling that when it folded. So, yeah, and, you know, they can talk directly to fans via social media and stuff. And so it's quite hard to get the bigger artists nowadays. Yeah, time with people is quite hard, I think. 
One of my favorite parts of the book, I love when uh, Paul Weller kind of, he got a little bit into a fight with you because you gave a six out of 10 to him. But, but now he's here saying, you're a great writer. He's, That's lovely, right? He sent me a text the day before <laughs> the book came out, actually, and said, good luck with the book, mate. I hope I'm in it. I hope there's a chapter in it about me. Uh, good, I hope the launch goes well. It's very, he's a very, you know, he's very, knowing that very few other A-list pop stars would, would bother to remember that and then text me and wish me luck and yeah we did fall I mean I was in the jam fan club when I grew up I was a massive jam fan and I was obsessed by them when I was like 11 12 13 14 kind of went off not didn't go off them but I grew out of it a bit but I you know I really loved Paul Weller he's, he's, I still dress a bit like him but I was just given his album to review, Stanley Road to review by NME, and I couldn't lie, I didn't like it very much. I thought it was okay. I gave it a six, which I thought was quite generous it's at not the time. bad, right? It's, for me, it's, it sounds like a five, the record. <laughs> but I think it read like a five, and I think that's really what bothered him, and he threatened to beat me up. Well, you know, he offered me the chance to go and fight him. Obviously, he would have won. I turned it down, and we had a bit of you know back and forth about it over the coming years. But eventually I sort of managed to charm him with some better reviews later on. You know, the one thing I liked also about the book is you're very honest. I mean, especially about your experience at Q Magazine. And it's interesting, and I can say because i got to be honest, Q Magazine for me in Brazil, I don't know, it was a big deal for yeah. me, you know. Like, I used to go to the newsstand and pay extra money because it's quite expensive to buy international magazines there. But for me, there was something about Q that represented respectability or something. But it was great to hear all the kind of, all the changes they had to do, kind of the ins and outs about it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I had to be honest because, you know, there's witnesses. Mm. And I think when you're telling your story, you have to tell the truth because there's always yes. someone who goes, that's not how I remember it. Or, you know, and I think there's a couple of editors I was, a, well, I wasn't cruel about, but I just told the truth and they may not be in the most flattering light. Um, so you had to, I had to be as honest as possible from my point of view. My perspective, everything's honest in the book. And that's why, you know, quite often in the book, I'm the person. I mean, the main thing was I had to be the full guy to prove that I'm an idiot. You know, and I am an idiot. I'm, I'm happy to admit that I'm an idiot. And many times my idiocy is what um, shines through in the book, I feel. But, um, yeah, I think it's important to be honest when you're telling a story. The Q stuff, I mean, it it is a good story, but there's so many... I mean, you don't want to say. I don't want to say it's sort of uh, the editorial lions led by the the donkeys of, of publishing, but it was that it was <laughs> there was some real idiots in charge of that magazine when we when I was working there. They really made some terrible mistakes. They should have been running pubs or you know estate agents. Some really good people were run for running estate agents, but instead they were lump, they lumbered themselves with music magazines and they messed the whole thing up. There's quite a few big big mistakes which I mention in the pages of the book I think. Was it regretful at the end because literally so many people including myself, you could see that even in the last year of Q Magazine there were some great issues out there with amazing interviews, like it was really yeah, it came as a bit of a shock uh, to yeah, people th- like me. For me it's a happy ending because I think mm. that um, if it had been three years earlier, four years earlier there would be a real sense of um, what if, what if they'd allowed us to do a good magazine, what if, what if but I think the fact that I'm, I'm grateful that you say that, I think it's true, those last two years or so, it was really good. And in particular, last year, we'd sort of worked out how to do it. And, you know, it was hard. It was hard in terms of sales and, and, and profits. But editorially, I think we kind of cracked it because we'd been allowed to do it. We'd been allowed to make the magazine that we wanted to do. 
and we weren't trying to second guess the reader. We were just trying to do a magazine we felt was good, and I think that obviously worked. And second guessing the reader was often the main problem with Q in the past. Like, what do the readers want? Well, the readers are you. You are the reader. It's what do you want to put in the magazine? So I think we managed it. So I think at the end, for me, yes, it's a shame it didn't continue. Yes, I would have liked to carry on with my job. But also, well, it was quite good at the end. We did it okay. We worked out how to do it. it. You know, it's a happy ending. There's no, I, I don't have any, I don't feel any what if scenario about this whatsoever. Are you? Would you be open to launch a new magazine? I'm not. I'm not saying you are thinking right <laughs> now, but I mean, if the opportunity arises, I'd love to edit a magazine again. I don't know whether I'd want to launch it. Do you mm. know what I mean? I'd, mm -hmm. I'd be happy to edit a magazine. The business side of magazines, it's a different skill from what I have I don't have that skill and I'm not a really very good businessman I mean I, my wife is a very good businessman <laughs> she she could launch it but I'm not like it's not for me no but I would definitely like to edit a magazine again at some point or edit something again but I'll say you know to be honest you, you, you have some good business insights because I know I remember you mentioned something about the CD that used to come with Q Magazine and the sales kind of declining when you remove the CD as I mean well. that's not a good insight I mean, that's, <laughs> but that's, that's obvious that's obvious when you're that's in, obvious yes when you're on a when you're on a newsstand and all your competitors have a CD and you have a CD and you're the market leader and you go hmm I wonder what happens if we take this CD off because it's quite expensive maybe we could keep all the readers and, it'll be, and we'll make more money and, and then lo and behold your two main rivals overtake you in sales almost immediately and you can't get those readers back because once a reader goes that's it so it was a really that was a, one of the that's one of the dumbest things that happened apart the other thing was a few really drastic redesigns which also amputated readers they were really stupid ideas but i think the cd was up there the C, losing the cd without any kind of backup plan That we didn't have a black backup plan. It wasn't like we were launching some other audio stuff or something to give people starting a queue club or some all the things you could have done to try and keep the community going. We just went no, no, same price or maybe 50p cheaper, and you lose your CD. I think that was just stupid. It's sad. <laughs> It's sad yeah. to lose the CD. Yeah, I, I, I think I remember that time about about the CD. What about? I mean, we're talking a lot about Q Magazine here. Sorry, but I know. You have a lot of passion for NME, but when was the heyday of NME? I mean, if I may ask, because I was I wasn't right. In, in well, I guess there's several heydays. I, I mean, the heyday before my era, before I worked there, I would say that I think they did quite well out of punk, and they did very well out of the sort of Manchester thing, the late '90s Stone Roses, Happy Mondays. They were they were pretty good on that. When um, they had James Brown as the feature editor and Danny Kelly as the editor, and they kind of And Alan Lewis, they had a good idea then about how to how to just put their favourite acts on it. The, the idea then was, we have five or six acts that the readers like, we're going to put them on the cover no matter what. And so we'll just rotate it, and it actually worked. You know, if there's like a news story on the cover, if there's a big gig on the cover, and you've kind of built a community. And then the, another another heyday was I, when, I, when I was there was during the sort of Britpop, the Oasis explosion, 90, 94, 95... 96 and then slowly 97 things start to teeter we sort of reach the tipping point and it starts dropping <laughs> you, off bad quite dramatically after that you maybe laugh with the list of covers in 2001 as well that oh, was kind of it interesting was but it's difficult 51 covers a year yeah. it's hard you know it's very hard to find if there's nothing happening in the music it's very hard I, yeah, I had to do that because I was just looking up I wonder what we did in that year and that was my last year's feature return and I I know actually it was the year after I left Feature, so maybe it's a bit vindictive, but I was just thinking, what did they have on the cover that year? And I looked through this and I thought, wow, it's really bad. And they were trying their best, 
but there was some, you know, it was, you know, they're putting hearsay on the cover, pop stars stuff. It was just wasn't for the enemy reader. But I, I liked one thing I didn't know. I liked that you kind of pushed for more hip hop and electronica acts as well, which was quite. Good, I right? think the electronica stuff. I was that was my music, so I was aware of what was mm. going. I was aware that that was uh, that was happening, and that we were not reporting that enough. And I knew that there was probably readers there, and it proved to be correct. Sort of Chemical Brothers, Underworld, etc. I think the hip hop thing was always a problem with Enemy is that it just didn't sell on the cover. You know, it didn't matter who it was. I did a Jay Z. I mean, it doesn't matter. Missy who Elliott, it, Missy Elliott, well. mm. Jay Z. Doesn't matter who it was. Public Enemy. Public Enemy sold a bit better than some of them, but ma- mainly it just didn't connect to the reader. They just wanted those white boys at guitars. I'm afraid of that. <laughs> draw your own conclusions. Anyone from Radiohead read Paper Cuts yet? I, no, I, no messages from Radiohead uh, as yet. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know. I, I think people should be should buy the book because of the some amazing in, in, inside the stories yeah. as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's those guys. I mean, I don't know. yeah, we had just a bit of a bit of tumble, a rough to and back and forth with them. But I feel like I've got the last word, and I don't know what what they can't get a word back. I think I think I've. I've I haven't won the argument. They've definitely won the argument, but I've managed to get one final word in, and uh, hopefully that's that's that. And Ted, you know, of course, I, want, I just want to know what you're doing these days. I know you have a music newsletter, but t- tell us how's it going. And even if someone wants to subscribe, you know, wh- wh- where should they go? Great question. So there is a, the new Q. Did you get a little joke? Yeah. New Q C U E. It's a th- three times a week music newsletter. I do with two of my colleagues from Q the magazine and um, we do interviews on Mondays and Wednesdays with people and then on the Friday we do recommendations of music and one issue is free so the Mondays are all free for all everyone can look and the other two you pay a £5 a month subscription which seems very reasonable to me and you get all of the editions and all the back catalogue and it's actually we kind of undersell it and I, we were talking about it today on the WhatsApp we've done so many good interviews that we've kind of really just put out there you know hope they'll catch on but uh, you know we're doing okay from it and it's very enjoyable work and it's really good to keep my music journalist eye in and i feel part of it still and it makes me listen to lots of new music so it's good it's enjoyable thank you very much dad and his book paper cuts how i destroyed the british music press and other misadventures is out now You can subscribe to Ted's newsletter on thenewq.substack.com and there's a clue in the name. Q is C-U-E. Let's head to Ukraine now. Uh, Hayen Avakian is editor-in-chief of a Ukrainian publication called Zvoy, which covers the eastern Ukrainian region of Donbas. When Russia invaded Ukraine in February, she and her seven-year-old son and her staff were forced to flee their homes and their cities. Like many Ukrainian outlets, they have relocated to the capital, Kyiv, where they have rented a small office and are continuing their work. They are still reporting on the east with a team of journalists, often anonymous, who are still on the ground in what are now the territories occupied by Russia. Hayan says she fears that her eastern home is being neglected by the international community and will become part of a grand bargain for peace. All the more reason for Zvoy to continue highlighting the atrocities being committed by Russia in the Donbas region and to help people in the east find means of support and escape as well. Monaco's Chris Chermak and Kalota Hebel spoke with Hayan at her office in Kyiv. 
I'm a Ukrainian journalist and I um, used to live uh, in uh, in the east of Ukraine uh, all my life. So my hometown Bakhmut is uh, now in the front line and um, at the first day of war we had to leave our places with my colleagues because uh, we understand that we uh, can't um, work in this uh, war situation because it's too dangerous for journalists. Uh, we know a lot of uh, situations when um, in Donetsk and Luhansk uh, journalists uh, uh, were killed uh, or uh, present because of their work. So we decided that uh, all our staff uh, need to be relocated from the East uh, because of this danger. Obviously, as everyone says here, Ukraine has been at war for eight years. Mm -hmm. What what was that like? What was the security situation like for you? How did you protect yourself and continue reporting over the last eight years? Mm -hmm. It was an uh, active fight uh, in uh, uh, 2014 and uh, 2015. Uh, but then the active uh, fight stopped and we lived in our hometowns and uh, it was safe for us. Uh, we work, we tell people about uh, uh, how um, uh, how it was developing and um, it was a lot of projects, uh, new buildings, new roads, new uh, social uh, projects. Uh, and uh, we thought that uh, East have a chance to be, to live, to, to develop. And um, we have a war. Uh, people were killed in this war. And uh, eight years it was a war. But uh, uh, now it's a completely different situation. It's uh, not a local war. It's uh, a war uh, for all our country and to all the Europe, I think. It's, uh, it's completely different. Talk to us a bit about uh, the media organization okay. and maybe looking back a few years, we'll bring it to now uh, soon, but how did it come up? And mm -hmm. before you were forced to leave, mm -hmm. what were the main stories you were telling? Uh, we have uh, an online journal uh, called Svoyi. Uh, it means like ours, our people. And uh, it was um, funded uh, by uh, um, agency uh, of media growth called Abo. It's, it's our office. And uh, we had a lot of stories, and we have now, about people from the East. And uh, it, um, it's about the people who live there and uh, the people who are IDPs. Um, Internally Yes. So uh, we didn't have um, news in uh, traditional, traditional media. And we have uh, just uh, this journal format formats uh, like uh, people's stories, uh, stories of uh, cities. And uh, we talk a lot of um, success stories when uh, people find their place uh, after this um, relocation in uh, 2014. So uh, we're trying to explain how people live in the East and uh, who they are. So it was our mission. Uh, now in this uh, a big war, we have another mission. Uh, we understand that um, we can help people uh, to survive in this war. 
So we try to explain them how to evacuate, where they uh, can have this support and uh, describe the stories uh, of people who are evacuated uh, and uh, uh, try to start the new life in new countries or new cities in Ukraine. You launched also in English on your site, perhaps to that point that you're just describing. How important is it? Why Why did you feel it was necessary to, to tell that story to a broader audience in English about what, what is happening in mm -hmm. the East? Uh, we understood that it's uh, there is a powerful uh, Russian propaganda all over the world, in Ukraine as well, but all over the world in uh, English-speaking countries, in, uh, in Europe. So uh, we decided to tell the truth about this war by our stories of witnesses. And uh, we decided to translate uh, the most uh, important stories that our, my colleagues uh, collect in English to give a possibility all, uh, to people all over the world uh, know the truth, how people survive and uh, how people die in this, uh, in this war. And uh, we tried to get contacts, uh, contacts with um, foreign journalists and they uh, take our stories in English and translate them to Japanese, uh, to other, other languages uh, and uh, present them to their audience. So it, it's uh, very important to us that our stories have this uh, long, long life. Is there, a, if you think what, off the top of your head, a particular story that, that comes to mind that you, would, that you would highlight, that you would encourage people to read? We have a very difficult story uh, from uh, Mariupol. And uh, it was a story about uh, a doctor, anesthetist, his name is uh, Andriy Serbin, and uh, he just uh, told us a very strong but difficult story how he was working in uh, Mariup Mariupol hospital during this uh, blockade and uh, during this air attacks, and uh, it was his confession. So uh, he told us that he uh, had to give um, medicine for children that um, uh, were dying because uh, they had a very, um, very difficult... Very injuries. severe injuries. Yes, uh, so it was difficult for him to uh, tell a journalist uh, everything he told. Uh, and uh, I know that uh, HBO uh, tried to contact with Andre and try to have an interview uh, to make uh, him like a part of uh, documentary stories about uh, Mariupol. So I think uh, it was um, uh, important to sh show his story. But I understand that uh, uh, we, we had a uh, thousand stories like this. So we had a lot of work and a lot of pain and a lot of, um, a lot of grief. And uh, Maybe you see just uh, that I live like like I lived uh, before the big war, but it's not true because uh, everything changed after a big invasion. How are you doing, if I can ask? And how is your staff? How is your staff doing? You're, you're continuing to do this in extraordinary circumstances. How do you 
try and also get the help that you need to deal with all of this? Mm -hmm. My journalists are the best. They uh, they are very courageous and uh, they um, continue working despite of everything. So, uh, but I understand that uh, we all are in trauma. <laughs> so we had to work now, but we had to support each other because uh, it's very difficult uh, to be in this grief with everyone in Ukraine. I have a son, uh, he's seven years old. Uh, his name is Timofey and it was very difficult for him uh, because uh, his father stayed in uh, Bakhmut uh, because uh, his uh, parents didn't want to to move. And uh, our family is in two parts now. But uh, I think that uh, it was the right decision for us uh, because my, my child is in uh, safe now and uh, but I understand that uh, he has a trauma as well uh, because uh, he lived in his his uh, new room uh, that we made uh, before this war. Uh, he had um, his friends uh, in school. He had his um, trainings uh, in uh, in the uh, swimming pool. So he had a beautiful life. But now it's everything changed uh, for him, and he tried to. He, he's just seven years old, but he tried to start new life in, in Kiev now. So I have this hope, uh, but I think that uh, it will be not in this year or maybe, no. I, I didn't know when I can go home. Thank you very much, Ayan, and of course to our Chris and Kalota as well. That's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, at fp at monaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and monaco.com as well. Before we go, a little song for you, as always. Savage, don't cry tonight. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Bye.